The one that I frequented a lot that I felt like this is this is where I come to see movies I love, movies that make me want to be a director. Caribbean Cinema's Fine Arts Movie Theater in, San, in Miramar, in Santurce, in the municipality of San Juan. They remodel it now, and now it's like a little bit bougie, but back in the day, it was super small, super... It had grit. You know that you, you can tell that a lot has gone through. You can smell the history. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the pulse of theatrical exhibition. And this week in our feature segment, we have Blue Beetle director Angel Manuel Soto speaking about the latest entry in the DC Extended Universe, that movie coming out from Warner Brothers this Friday. But before we get into that interview, we have our colleague and co-host, Rebecca Pauly, deputy editor at Box Office Pro, to talk everything box office and industry news here in Theatrical Exhibition. Rebecca, I hope you had a good weekend. You saw The Meg 2 over the weekend. I did. I caught The Meg 2 at the Regal Kaufman UA. It's the, you know, it used to be the big movie studio up here. It was my first time uh, at that particular cinema. That's in Queens here, right? In New York. Yep, that's uh, that's up in Queens. I think it's as the crow flies. It's my closest movie theater now that I have moved up here. And the third act is where you expect a movie about killer sharks to really sing, and and it did. It was uh, it was it was quite entertaining. And I'm, I'm hearing good things about Voyage of the Demeter. Actually, I mean, I will, as we'll discuss, it didn't. Not many people did see it on opening weekend, but I've I've been hearing it's one of those like it's going to be one of those that like in ten years people are going to look back like why didn't we see that. So I'm going to try to get out to see that. In movies of August, man. I mean, you'll find these underrated genre gems coming out this month. There's always a good, like, overlooked August movie every year. No matter what, nobody's really paying attention. They're, like, barely marketed. But then three, four years down the road on basic cable, there's just something that sprouts up. But uh, we'll talk about those movies shortly. I actually, Rebecca, I made it to the movies. I think I get a medal for this. I made it to the movies with my wife for the first time since our child came into the world. I've gone to like work press screenings because it's part of the job during work hours, like Mm -hmm. Tuesday at 11 a.m. But no, Cindy Cindy hadn't been able to go out. We went out. Uh, My parents were here uh, to help us out and to meet the baby. We went to go see the Barbie movie. Finally caught up with that at the Alamo Draft House over in Yonkers. It was a great time. It was a really fun experience. You forget just how important it is to go out and watch movies. I've been watching a lot at home, obviously, and I've been watching a lot at press screenings. Less than optimal, even press screenings, in my opinion. Watching something with a paying audience, I think, is always the best way to to enjoy something. That's how I felt with the Barbie movie, a movie that I really did enjoy. And of course, looking at the box office numbers, Barbie keeps on earning the fourth consecutive weekend at number one behind us with a $33.7 million uh, domestic haul. The movie is now up to $1.18 billion globally. Rebecca, this is fantastic. Over last weekend, only a 36% drop in its fourth frame. This is fantastic numbers from this title. Yeah, I mean, uh, some friends and I, we had a you know, an in-person kind of movie gathering, and they're all film nerds as well. And, and we were trying to think of the last time that there was really a uh, a phenomenon like like Barbie, like Barbenheimer, that kind of crosses all sorts of different demographics. Like 
It's a lightning in a bottle moment, I think, for exhibition. Also for Warner Brothers, I'm not sure as Mattel grows its uh, film portfolio into franchises, the Mattel Cinematic Universe, probably the worst lesson you could take from the great success of Barbie is, hey, let's do something that worked with an original voice as a one-off. Let's build the universe around that. Let's hope it doesn't go there. But, uh, you know, with with over a billion dollars in box office, it's hard to think Mattel and Warner Brothers won't team up to try to go back to the well. We'll see what happens. But so far, it's been great news here for Barbie. You talk about how the influence of this movie and its movie's marketing has stretched across all parts of culture. If you go on Twitter and you just look at some of the zanier election season campaigns across Latin America, the Barbie trailer is being like surreptitiously used. As sort of as sort of like primary marketing materials across countries like Colombia, Peru, Argentina, even Mexico, you've been seeing some really weird uses of Barbie marketing materials to market political candidates. That's the level of breakthrough in the zeitgeist that this movie has achieved globally. <laughs> in a different way, Oppenheimer also still earning money in uh, week four, but of course uh, the marketing materials there probably won't be used by too many politicians. An 18 point million dollar fourth weekend domestically for the title that is now at 264 million in North America, 649 million worldwide. That is a 35% uh, week four drop for Oppenheimer. Great momentum there. And then rounding out the top five, we've got Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem in its second weekend, uh, nearing the $100 million mark globally, a 44% drop on the domestic market. Meg to the trench uh, going up to... 256.9 million worldwide, 54 million domestic, also in week two. And in fifth place, as Rebecca previewed, the debut of Last Voyage of the Demeter, based on a single chapter in Bram Stoker's Dracula book. That is a line pulled from the marketing material themselves. I'm not sure how that's supposed to market anything. That opened to $6.5 million. But this movie has been getting some positive word of mouth from people that actually go to see movies, right? It's like August film. I like, you know, it's horror and it's not, you know, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a state of things now where horror movies are more of the insidious franchise, conjuring franchise. You know, they're not that historical. You know, I like maritime movies. I like horror. I like Corey Hawkins. Like, I'm down. I'm down to see it. So all in all, Rebecca, a weekend that we really didn't have a new release to come in and steal that number one spot from Barbie or that number two spot from Oppenheimer. But on the top three, you look at these movies, Barbie, Oppenheimer, uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Mutant Mayhem, all of them holdovers, all of them dropping under 50%. A good sign about people coming back to the movies. Uh, you know, it's... it's uh, a nice August weekend. Uh, hopefully we'll get a little bit more traction this weekend with two new wide releases coming out from studios. We'll be talking about those in a bit. But before we do, it's earnings call season, your favorite time of the year, Rebecca. You've been listening to a bunch of people just shout out numbers on speakerphone, just drown out for like hours and hours of like per caps, percentages. I'm, I'm dreaming it's stock tickers. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca does all this work so you don't have to listen to a second of it. Uh, let's start with AMC Theaters. They recently had their Q2 earnings call. What are the highlights from that session? 
Now, all these earnings calls cover the second quarter of the year, so they cut off before Barbie and Oppenheimer come out. That said, there is a lot of talk about how uh, how successful July has been for everyone, with AMC having their highest revenue month ever in July, uh, largely on the strength of those two films. But even looking at Q2, when the slate wasn't as robust, films all, weren't always performing so well. I mean, Super Mario Brothers definitely that's uh, that that was the bright spot. Spider-Verse, right? The the Spider-verse. Spider-Man animated movie. Two animated movies that came in and really overperformed when we hadn't seen that in the market. That has to be good news. Yeah, I mean, AMC uh, saw 12.2% growth in attendance compared to last year, and their highest quarterly attendance since the final uh, quarter of 2019, so so pre-pandemic. We're also seeing uh, F&B per caps continue to be strong for this quarter. Their F&B revenue per patron was just about equal with the highest it's ever been, just within you know within one penny of that. You know, a lot of a lot of talk uh, in that earnings call was devoted to kind of the outside of the traditional cinema window, specifically AMC's foray into the retail popcorn market, which we didn't get any any numbers on that, but they still are. They expressed uh, excitement and then positive feelings over over the results they've been having, plans for expansion, uh, and that they also are still planning to introduce their own uh, private label line of the chocolate and gummy candies uh, later this year, early next. And going from the top circuit in the United States, Cineplex, the top circuit in Canada, also announcing its Q2 results. What are the highlights from that call? It's a little bit more uh, varied with, with Cineplex, uh, the Q2 they had, just because they're involved in different types of businesses. Their strongest quarter uh, since the pandemic started in terms of revenue, we're seeing box office revenue per patron go up. This is the case with a lot of other domestic chains, in part because of, of the rise of you know more people buying those premium tickets, those surcharges kind of ticking up the per person averages. So good on that front. They're also involved in the kind of cinema advertising, digital marketing screen front, things slower to pick up there. But on the flip side, Cineplex opened the second location in their uh, Cinema Entertainment Center Junction Complex during, I believe it was in May. So they're really bullish on that concept still. And with their Player One Amusement Group subsidiary, they you know, make and, and put out a lot of these arcade games. So that was something that Cineplex investors have to be very happy about because as that trend continues to gain traction in North America, even with other non-Cineplex chains, Cineplex still gets some of the downstream benefits of that. It's so interesting to me to see a major circuit in a market like Cineplex investing in out-of-home destinations and out-of-home entertainment complexes that aren't tied to cinemas all the time. As you mentioned, we've seen cinema entertainment centers really proliferate, I think mainly in the state of Texas, which makes sense. You have a lot of land in Texas. There's a lot of distance between places in Texas. It's very hot in Texas. I think we've had, what, a streak of like 100 degrees top. uh, (laughs) Yeah, we've had a streak of like 100 degree and above days in that state. So going into a complex where you can just park spend a whole afternoon, a whole day there in air conditioning, comfortable. That's important. Cineplex, obviously, in Canada, weather, a factor there as well, different type of weather. So it's great to see how these things evolve. I do wonder if anybody's going to steal that play from the Cineplex playbook. If any complex here in the U.S., any circuit says, hey, what if we build out an out-of-home destination that isn't tied 
to exhibition. Now, talking about diversification, another publicly traded circuit uh, that has a long history of investing in all sorts of different businesses, including a cameo appearance on your Monopoly board, for all of those interested, is Reading, which now uh, is one of its major businesses, are exhibitors. They, they run movie theaters in a number of markets. Rebecca, what's the update on Reading? And not as much there. We've just had, uh, you know, the, the official earnings report come out. The actual earnings call with investors is going to be happening after uh, a few days after we record this podcast. So that, that tends to be where you get uh, most of the, the color and interesting things popping up. However, Reading International also having uh, having a solid quarter, the cinema segment of the of their business delivering an operating income of four point five million highest they've had uh, since the fourth quarter of 2019. And uh, one of the theaters that they run in the United States, one that New Yorkers were were familiar with, is the Angelica, which had a house record for the highest grossing opening week ever, actually, uh, in Q2 of this year, due to no surprises here, no, no need for a drum roll. Wes Anderson with Asteroid City. Oh, that's great to hear. Of course, we're talking about a specialty circuit and... Wes Anderson being a reference name for the art house market. Great news for Reading and for the Angelica. And in the good news part of our conversation, we also have a positive report here from one of the biggest and most influential companies in the vendor space, National Cinemedia, the on-screen advertising company. Rebecca, they filed for Chapter 11 earlier this year, but they are emerging out of it. They are out of it now. I believe officially NCM and Cineworld are, are officially out uh, of Chapter 11 now. Uh, in the case of NCM, that comes with financial restructuring or with, with new additions to the board of directors. Great to see them emerging from, from Chapter 11. Yeah, as you note, great news uh, to all our colleagues over at NCM uh, to come out stronger from Chapter 11. Uh, streak that we've seen across multiple companies that had to file for Chapter 11 during the pandemic. They come back, they come back stronger. And talking about a comeback, we've got two new movies opening this weekend. First from Warner Brothers, Blue Beetle. That is expected to open between 20 and $27 million here in North America. We've been increasing our forecasting range for this title every week. We've seen a lot of positive momentum on it. Is it going to be enough to beat out Barbie at the top of the box office? Remember, Barbie playing to $33.7 million domestically in week four. I think it's going to be a close call. If uh, Blue Beetle overperforms, it's going to be the new number one. But I wouldn't be too surprised if it goes down to a photo finish between that and Barbie. No, I mean, with Barbie having a 36% drop in week four. It's holding so well. Um, I mean, I think the good news, at least for Warner Brothers, is that they win either way because they're both Warner Brothers titles. But yeah, with with Blue Beetle, this is one that we've had a lot of questions about this release since uh, the first trailer was released, I think shortly before CinemaCon. You know, it's part of that DCEU franchise that is already kind of, it's in the the works to be scrapped and relaunched. This is a character that has never uh, been in, in a film 
before as comics kind of exclusives. So it's not someone who people are familiar with really necessarily. But Daniel, as, as you mentioned at the top of the podcast, you spoke with the director of, of the film. What impression did you come away with? You know, it was an interesting interview to have, Rebecca, because as you remember during our CinemaCon podcast series, Blue Beetle was one of the movies that I had the most questions about. I wasn't sure in terms of its positioning in late summer, where it was going to go. I think the social media response that we got from the first trailer, the numbers that we're seeing here through our partner websites were very positive. That's why I think our forecast has been increasing week over week. Everything digitally implies this to perform at a very competitive level, but it is coming during a weird time, not only in the calendar, but also in the whole history of the DC extended universe. People were quite bullish on The Flash at a certain point before release, and, right. and we know how that turned out, and not well. But this is a different uh, beast altogether. I think when we talk about a title like Blue Beetle, this is a title that was originally planned to be a streaming-only release on HBO Max back in the pre-Warner Brothers Discovery days. And in my conversation with uh, Puerto Rican director Angel Manuel Soto, one of the things I really took away from this is that even though he knew that there was a good chance that this would just stay on HBO Max, he never planned to make a movie to be streamed at home. From the beginning, from pre-production, he always had the ambition to make a big budget, big scale movie with all the resources that the studio could provide him. And it was during that pre-production stage that Warner said, hey, you know what? We're going theatrical on this. We'll get you what you need to make this a big film. And I did come out of the interview, I think, a lot more confident on how this film is going to play. If you just listen to Angel Manuel when, when he gets on for this interview, you'll just be able to tell that this is a filmmaker who has his first opportunity at a major studio, gets to tell a story that he is passionate about, and that he is putting everything that he can behind this movie being a success, despite the, let's say, marketing challenges of not having the cast and actors promote the movie because of the, the actor strike. This interview was recorded before the actor strike. We have to say that. But Angel Manuel, I think, is a fascinating filmmaker and one whose career I'm really excited to see develop. He did a movie prior to Blue Beetle that kind of was, was a hit at Sundance, was looking like it was going to be, you know, more, you know, an independent, smaller theatrical release, but still a theatrical release. And then various factors, including the pandemic, it did not go to theaters. Strangely enough, that is also the case with the other film coming out in wide release this weekend from director Josh Greenbaum Strays. His previous feature film, Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which uh, Daniel and I know you Personal you favorite. The, Personal favorite. Really good. Wish I'd been able to Best see it. Best comedy of the last screen. five years, easily. Easily. Is that okay to and say? It would, have been, it would have killed on the big screen. Oh, and then, uh, uh, you know, in my interview with, uh, with Josh Greenbaum talking about that as well, how uh, comedies in particular play so well uh, in a crowd. I, I interviewed him. I mean, this was back probably, gosh, in, in February, because I believe this film was initially slated for a May release. But I'm really, uh, really excited for this film. But yeah, God, I mean, you have a movie starring Will Ferrell and Jamie Foxx, and they're not allowed to do marketing for the thing. I mean, that's got to hurt. And that May release date looks a little bit better now, doesn't it? So we were expecting an opening weekend range between 14 and $21 million for Strays. Uh, another, like, I think, solid performance here. But we do have to say this is an R-rated comedy. 
again, that it- We've had a lot of them so far this year, and it's been- uh, Yeah. I mean, they haven't tanked, no, but no, things like had, no hard feelings. Yeah, you had you no know. hard feelings that I think did you know, decently well, but it is tough to pull off in this market. It's even tougher to pull off when you don't have the star power to promote this movie and late night talk shows to go out and make appearances. It'll all have to be word of mouth for both Strays and Blue Beetle this weekend. But I think we're both confident of the filmmakers behind those movies. That's all we can ask for. You know, filmmakers that make interesting movies going out there, getting more opportunities to work once again. And uh, talking about that, let's hear a little bit more from Angel Manuel Soto, the filmmaker behind Warner Brothers Blue Beetle coming out this Friday. That interview is coming up after the break. And we are back here on the Box Office Podcast with Angel Manuel Soto, the filmmaker behind Warner Brothers' upcoming DC Universe title, Blue Beetle, hitting theaters on August 18th. Angel, bienvenido. Between Latinos here, we might be slipping into Spanish, so I'm sure our listeners will, will be okay with it. Yeah, nice to be here, Daniel. Thank you. So, so much I want to chat with you about, but uh, since we are the official publication of the National Association of Theater Owners and our audience is mainly looking at the theatrical aspect of this movie, I want to bring in some of those elements because your story is a, a great story that I think a lot of filmmakers would love to have. You go to Sundance with your debut feature film, Charm City Kings. It gets a great reception. You pick up theatrical distribution, January 2020, your movie's going to hit theaters. Of course, plot twist, as we all know, pandemic happens. And unfortunately, Charm City Kings ends up being known more as a streaming title than the theatrical title you originally intended. Of course, these were just circumstances that happen in life. We understand why these decisions had to happen. But I just wanted to get your take on it. How did you deal with that? How did you take that news? Well, it was, uh, first of all, thank you. And gracias por ser entendido con mi parte en español. But I'll do my best to say everything in English. It was very special to me being able to do that movie, Charm City Kings. And when we did it for Sony and the reception and everything that was going so well, Sony Picture Classics picked it up for theatrical release. We had this plan of going to like 1,300 theaters it was going to be like, you know, the, the biggest thing that I had done at the time. And the speculation and the excitement from the studio was pretty um, overwhelming in a, in, a, in a very positive way. And after winning Sundance with the best assembled cast and the hype that came out of that premiere, everything seemed like it was heading the right direction. I got engaged. You know, my whole plan was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be awesome. As you will said, the pandemic hits and the... Uh, Nobody knew what was happening, so we pushed the date. It was going to be April 17, I remember, because that's my father's birthday. It was going to be April 17, the premiere, then they pushed it to August. And then when they started to notice that the pandemic wasn't going anywhere, that it was only intensifying, a lot of the studios started selling those titles to some streaming services. And that's exactly when HBO got their hands on it and opted to do a, an October release of the film. At first, it was a little bit, you're bummed, I'm bummed. We, we spent a lot of time creating a cinematic experience for that film. We shot it with the intention of creating an immersive cinematic experience for all the viewers in the theater. For those of you that didn't go and see the movie at the premiere in Sundance, it felt like you were watching a basketball game. People were so excited with the movie. People were like standing and clapping and yelling. And the, the programmers at Sundance were like, 
what the hell is going on? This is awesome. So it was like, a, I was, I was hoping to get that whole collective experience going on. So at first it was like bond, but there's nothing you can literally do. It, it was one of those two cases where the whole, when, when they cancel a shooting and they say it's, it's like, it's unforeseen, it's like God. Act of God, bring, I think is, is the term yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. Like, oh God. The whole act of God thing, you have zero control over. So I feel like, you know, at least somebody picked it up and they're giving a lot of love to it. And they spend a decent amount of time creating an amazing marketing strategy, posters, all that stuff. So at least I was very happy how they were shooting the film. And, you know, the film did very well. I think it was the most streamed movie that October. And it opened doors for me, I guess, at the end of the day. There was like a, a little bit of a blessing in disguise with the situation. And I'm not at all undermining the impact of the, the pandemic had on people's lives and the people that we lost during the pandemic. But it ultimately allowed me to create a relationship with HBO Max and Warner Brothers. Because of that, part of that relationship and the release of the movie and the reception of, of Charm City Kings, that's when DC noticed and they reached out, showing me, talking to me about projects and my interest in filmmaking. And that's when they pitched the story of Jaime Reyes as Blue Beetle. My first reaction of the bat was like, I know disrespect to anybody, but I, I didn't have much interest in brownwashing the story of Spider-Man. Like, first of all, we already have Miles Morales, so I don't see why there should be like a brownwashing of Spider-Man. But I didn't see any need in like repeating the story. To my surprise, I received a script that they sent me from Gareth Tunet Alcocer. Amazing writer, madly talented, very eloquent too, knowledgeable about the conditions and the situations of the world and with a lot of sense of humor and heart. And the truth is that all those adjectives that I just mentioned were things that he already on his own added into the script. And that's why it drew me in. I was like, oh, okay, this is not just your typical hallmark Mexican postcard and the stuff that we're being used or conditioned to consume as like the society expects Mexicans to be. This had something to say, it focused on the right things, and it treated this origin story in a different way. It had that Latin American sensibility. And it allowed us, given that the movie was already intentioned to be theatrical, it only went through that window of HBO Max releases when the whole mandate here at Warner Brothers was to release things on HBO Max. And when we started doing all the concept art and building and building the story, doing the world building and setting up the stakes and making it look, they realized that this movie is bigger than HBO Max. And for us, it was kind of like, good, because no problem. <laughs> I'll release anything in HBO Max any day, but there are certain projects that are meant to be experienced in a collective environment and watch in the big screen. Luckily, we were able to to not only develop, but also create a project that satisfies those expectations. Let's go into that because I think it's it's something very special that happens with this project. As you say, it's an opportunity to work with HBO Max that comes from something like you mentioned was a little bit of a disappointment at first, but then you look at the conditions that the world is in. It's the best possible route for your film at the time. It opens the door that hadn't been opened before. And it leads to this opportunity to make a film at the time for HBO Max. During the pre-production, as you say, the executives look at the potential of this and they turn this into a cinematic spectacle. They decide to go 
as a theatrical movie all in with a big marketing campaign. You were there at CinemaCon in Las Vegas with us. It was a big part of the Warner Brothers presentation. Can you go into how that decision to go all in on theatrical reverberated around the set and around everyone working in the film? Well, the truth is that the decision to go theatrical happened even before we went into pre-production. This was happening on the, you know, like the soft prep moment where we're doing all the director passing the script. We're talking to concept artists like Shane Baxley and 9B Collective. Uh, we started like even working super early on the design of the suit with Mayas Rubio and started developing some of the storyboard work and previous for the action sequences very early on. So we tried to kind of get ahead of, of the pre-production hurricane that comes when you're on, on location and whatnot. But the, what was helpful was that during that whole development of what the world is going to look like before we even went into pre-production, that's when they noticed that the film had a scale that transcended TV. And they announced even before we went into Atlanta and Puerto Rico to shoot, to prep the movie and shoot the movie, we were already on board. Everybody understood the assignment that we're going to do a film shot at the scale of an IMAX movie so that the whole world can enjoy in the collective experience. And you mentioned shooting in Atlanta and Puerto Rico, uh, your your home country where you're from. I know there's also aspects of where uh, of the fictional city where the movie is set that brings in El Paso, a border town here in the U.S., one of the most unique cities in the world. If anybody listening to this has never been to El Paso, wonderful. Really, it's just one of the gems here in the United States. Sunset and the view, the skyline, like the way you see Juarez from the mountains in El Paso and the people of El Paso, the artists of El Paso is something incredible. We, me and the DP, we went to El Paso to see the skylines, to see the architecture, to see the people, to meet how the families work, to see how it's like to be in, inside of a family unit in El Paso. We met with muralists like El Simi, and we even brought El Simi, uh, El Paso muralist, to do some of the mural work for Palmera City. We went in to get as much as we could to represent the things that we we felt like we can incorporate into this made-up city where the new iterations of Blue Beetle is going to exist called Palmera City. But we didn't want Palmera City to live without the DNA of El Paso. And it also gives you the opportunity to bring in other inspirations, right? I mean, as we know, Latin America is a very diverse place. Every place is specific to itself, and you can draw upon different cultures and put them on this mural of a fictionalized new setting, Palmera City, as you mentioned. So we know El Paso is it has that vibrancy that you infused it with. What other parts, either of your childhood or of your life, of, of the people that were involved in the production, what did you want to bring into that setting from elsewhere? So like, we wanted to create a city where it was like a mixed salad of Latino cultures. Not really there's one predominant group, but that beat of every one of us, of our blood history, of our collective experience. Whether you live in your native country or you're in the diaspora, there's something that connects us. And ultimately creating a city inspired on, we often, we had that conversation of how all these A-list superheroes, like the, you know, the class A, you know, the, the Superman, he has Metropolis, Batman, Gotham, the Flash, Central City. Like in DC, it seems like, <laughs> we're saying like in DC, it seems like when you are top tier, you get your own city vibes, right? So it was, really, 
it was very exciting to see after you know knowing the story of of Jaime, knowing the story of El Paso, knowing the story of the other superheroes that take place in this uh, DC universe, coming into the script and seeing that there is this fictional city that's being explored, but it didn't have a look. And I was like, so I don't want this to be another replica of the gray, doomy city or like this massive industrial Detroit looking area. For me, what I really wanted to try is how can we embrace the sunny metropolitan cities, taking off the bat, like the one that we know, like Miami and downtown Miami and Brickell, but also the feelings of the neighborhoods around the EFE or Panama City or even Puerto Rico, to name a few, right? Like we try to see how we can incorporate a mixture of architectures, but also a mixture of skies and flora and fauna so that we create this fictional city that has a little bit of that tropical flavor, the Latino flavor, the South American flavor, bringing people from all sorts of paths so that we create a, a world. Because Palmetto City might be the metropolitan area where all the business and the bougie and the yuppies live. And then you have the surrounding neighborhoods, which are like the other side of the tracks, if you if you want to say something like that. But we kind of like envisioned it in the way of it, like it's in the other side of the pond. There's like the keys and those keys, we call them the edge keys. And those edge keys is where like the humble people live, is where like the working class, the immigrants, the struggling communities are often pushed outside and marginalized. So we created these edge keys, which kind of like envision a little bit of the segundo barrio flow of El or even like the barrios of Santurce or even, you know, Hialeah, um, uh, for example. So it's like, how can we create a unique place that, People from El Paso could say like, aha, uh -huh, there's a little bit of home there. Also, people from all around the world can say there's a little bit of home in that place. And if we wanted to create a superhero who happens to come from a Latino family, who's Mexican family, and he represents a little bit what it is like to be, well, he embodies what it is like to be represented on the screen. We felt like it was nice to show a little bit that is not exclusive, it's for all of us. And of course, you're never going to get it perfect. You're never going to get it right. People want more. People want that. But we just tried to do the best we could in being inclusive within our rainbow of cultures that compose the Latin American experience and not just make it into a monolith, which is kind of like what we've been used to seeing so much. I think it's a, it's a huge part of getting representation right. It's not just about diversity. It's about actually reaching out and putting in the thought and effort and work that it seems that your production came in to tackle. And, and talking about productions, I mean, you come from a background of independent filmmaking, of having the blood, sweat, and tears you need to maybe get half the budget you need to just shoot it. And then let's not start with post-production because you're selling a lot more than blood, sweat, and tears to, to finish at that point. You go from that background to launching the new iteration of a major studio's DC comic book franchise on the big screen. Of course, it's a, it's a radically different set at that point. What was the biggest adaptation for you to step into that set with all those resources that you, I'm sure, dreamed of having 10 years ago? What was the biggest transition in stepping into that and, and feeling comfortable and confident in the role? Because with productions like this, you have to be comfortable and confident from second one, right? I guess, like, personally, every, every project for me whether it's big or small, I I come at it with the same awe, wonder, 
respect and, and devotion to the craft and the art that I love so much and that means so much to me. You know, it, it, it is the medium that allowed me to put food on the table and provide for my family and help my family back home. So whether big or small, I take it very seriously. But even going from micro budget movies like my first one, La Granja, or like a smaller budget movie like Charm City Kings and making that big jump into this one, for me, like the biggest take was I have to be equally prepared coming in as I would do the other ones to avoid any hiccups along the way and to actually be able to navigate and handle all the the things that come with all the problems that come with a big budget movie. It's like not to like it's the more money, more problems type of thing. And and the more people and it is at a bigger scale for sure. But I was blessed to be able to have a crew, a cast and crew who were devoted to making the best film possible, starting with our heads of departments, were really a big ally in making able to communicate and translate my vision and elevate my vision to a point of execution and being able to be taken care of so I can focus on the things that matter. And having a, a very, an amazing and supportive, no pun intended, VFX supervisor. Oh, that's not a pun. <laughs> that's not a pun that's fine <laughs> okay <laughs> it just sounds so similar i thought it was i was making fun and i did not okay so yeah so like i i had a really strong support from my vfx supervisor making sure that we were able to execute a lot of the heavy demands of vfx shots i mean the the movie has i think like 13 1600 vfx shots and treat them in a way that wasn't so heavily dependent on green screen and the gray pajamas and and blind performance on CG. Um, we right off the bat made the decision, and this was one of the great things that we came up with working with the studio, was how we can make a, a movie about a, almost like a coming-of-age story about a, a young boy assuming his responsibility and becoming who he's supposed to become, pursuing his destiny and purpose in life with his family, with a lot of humor and heart that happens to have superhero elements in it. So given the indie sensibilities or like the indie approach that I have done my other films, it's like, how can we incorporate the lessons learned into making a, a film intimate and sustainable and also using those ideas of like practical locations, of like um, practical suits, practical light gags to then help VFX and not be dependent on VFX. That way VFX enhances what we were able to do on camera. So that allowed us to be able to do a film that might have deemed to be small in the bigger scope of superhero genres because of all the demands and the spectacles and what the audience is used to. It allowed us to make the most we can with that budget and elevate it with the expertise of all the other departments. And by doing so, also allowed us to sort of experiment a little bit on, on the structure and how this a superhero movie or an origin superhero movie of a rather lesser known character 
become a story that you can actually not just follow or engage, but actually be connected with. So we took those, we took a lot of inspiration in how Latin American cinema deals with character and deals with plot and how we can actually make it fit within the expectations and the checkboxes of our superhero genre. And by doing so, I think they created like a really nice ping pong of this immersiveness of the world, of diving and living with the characters. By the time the action starts, you're you're very familiar with the family. Sort of like in the bigger scale of things when developing the story and helping with the story on the script stages with the with Garrett Alcosen, we often saw that this first movie, and I call it first movie because the design of our story is that this is the first act of a saga. So it's the first movie, although it's a movie with its own three-act structure, in the character arc of our hero, this is his first act. By the end of our movie, he's ready to go into the new world, right? So kind of like we were like, how can we go down to the indie approach of storytelling that we love and that we know so well, and then how can we add these things to deliver on those expectations? And I'm excited to see it on the big screen. And of course, having that background in exhibition for our publication, I wanted to ask you, do you have a movie theater in your lifetime that you always think of? Like when I say the word movie theater, which is the specific theater that you remember? Is it something you grew up with? Maybe where you go now with your partner? You're going to have to pick one of them. I was born, raised, and I grew up my whole life in Puerto Rico. I've only been working in LA for like seven years. So more than 30 years, I lived in the island. And um, I'll say like, yes, there's a couple because I said like, oh, it's like the first movie I saw that made me want to do movies or like the one movie that was next to my house that I could afford to go. But I think that the that the one that that I frequented a lot, that I felt like this is... This is where I come to see movies I love, movies that make me want to be a director. It's the fine arts, Caribbean cinema's fine arts movie theater in, San, in Miramar, in Santurce, in the municipality of San Juan. They remodel it now, and now it's like a little bit bougie, but back in the day, it was super small, super, it had grit. You know that you can tell that a lot has gone through, you can, you can smell the history. The theaters were not big, but they were showing Almodovar. We were showing like all these international movies that helped me fall in love with this medium that I only saw. I never had the chance to study it. I always wanted to study film, but there's no film schools in Puerto Rico. I hope, you know, we can change that little by little. But I always wanted to to do this and and going to watch those foreign films and independent films. I remember watching Requiem for a Dream there. I remember watching Pi. I remember watching The Following, Memento, you know, like all, all these films that don't get those wide releases. That was my um, sanctuary, you know, that was my holy place. And I know that I could go there and be inspired. And I learned so much by watching movies there that I still think about it fondly. I still go, like, that's where we, where we did the premiere for my first movie. We did a really small premiere there. And it was it, it was a different venue because they remodeled it, but it was kind of like, ah, oh, it's nice to be able to premiere my first movie in the movie theater where I learned to love the craft and appreciation, not just of cinema, but of, 
of world cinema. And kind of like that whole idea of even being so exposed to world cinema, I feel like that also informs how I also handle character and how I also handle the things that I care the most about a story. Because the rest of the things that you can put into a story is budget dependent. All the explosions, VFX is however much money you get. But you don't need that much money to create a visceral story that connects audiences around the world and move hearts and have an emotional development that we all can connect, learn, have questions, uh, debate with. That's for me, is kind of like the beauty of cinema. And that was Angel Manuel Soto, the filmmaker behind Warner Brothers' Blue Beetle coming out this weekend. Earlier, you heard from my colleague, Rebecca Pauly, going over the entire box office forecast and industry news here in the world of theatrical exhibition. I'm Daniel Luria. Thank you again for listening to the Box Office Podcast. This is a collaboration between Report Edit Podcast, the Box Office Pro, and the Box Office Company. We're back here every Thursday. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, like, share. It helps us do what we do every week. Thanks again for your support. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.